Welcome to Game Night. This is our occasional geek gab focused on tabletop gaming. I'm your host, Dornal, and joining me, co-host, the inimitable Daddy Warpig. Our special guest tonight is Bradford Walker. He's a friend of the show and a writer who blogs about gaming and such at bradfordcwalker.blogspot.com. Welcome back to the show, Bradford. I think if I were to bet money that he is still in the process of um, grabbing a drink. So, yeah. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I just grabbed my drink. Daddy Warpig was right again. Impeccable timing. And and unlike me on Geek Gab Prime, Daddy Warpig has the necessary training and years of radio experience to fill that dead air. He saw that truck coming and jumped right in front of it. Uh, so I titled this show Bad Players, Good Players. And sort of if you guys have been following along with uh with the show i've been sort of exploring what it means to be a dungeon master and, and a game master and what it means to be a player uh sort of the roles and expectations for them at the table and bradford you've been writing a lot of uh, posts lately on that subject on your blog about gaming and you know, what players should expect from the game and what players should expect from the Game Master, and also a little bit on what the Game Master should expect from the players. I think the uh, first one, was it, was about... Uh, you started a series called The Game Master is Crom. Yeah. Um, the Game Master is Crom. Um, uh, at the big local fan convention in the Minneapolis area, Convergence, uh, not last year, but the year before, I sat on a panel ostensibly about tabletop role-playing games, and I was on that panel with a published novelist from England, and she was going on about how she was talking, you know, talking about how she made certain everybody had their narrative trope satisfied and their relationship porn and all of that. And there was another guy who's local, decent guy, it was pretty much doing the same kind of thing you'd expect out of a out of a blog article at, at uh, Wizards of the Coast or something like that. And eventually we got around to, well, what what is your obligation as the game master to the players, and you know, do you, you know what do you do to make certain that they have fun? And I'm they got to me, and I said, I am Crom. I don't care. That's not my problem. And that's when the you know, that's when I got the look. You know, everyone who's listening to this, you know what that look is. The look where everybody thinks you're insane because they want to agree, but they are afraid to. That's because that's an interesting perspective. That runs counter to the sort of standard advice that you get. Like when you're working with a gaming group, the idea is figure out what your players like and you know, Jim Bob likes a lot of combat, so make sure that there's a combat encounter. And Mary Sue likes to interact with NPCs, so make sure there's a little talky-talky and that sort of thing. Yep, that attitude, you know, has has been unfortunate because I think it leads to a kind of coddling for a hobby that was created originally by adults for adults, and. Unfortunately, those of us who came into it back in the day, who were children at the time, as I was, we unfortunately have, in many ways, ruined it for a lot of other people. And a lot of the, you know, the advice that has been offered over the years has been, in effect, to deal with this young cohort and those who came after them who don't have the wargaming experience that the original players did you know the you know the recently deceased tim cask uh and others who were part of uh, gary gygax's table or at dave arnson's table or mar barker's table all of whom were in an axis between lake geneva wisconsin and the university of minnesota at the time in the late 60s through to the mid 70s and the reason I just, I finally gave up on it is because at the, you know, I was about 40 years old 
And I'm thinking, I'm an adult. I'm not even a young adult anymore. I'm about middle-aged, or I will be soon. Why am I talking about this as if I were coddling children? No. No. I am not responsible for the player's satisfaction. Players are responsible for their own satisfaction. If they are not satisfied, they can go play somewhere else to find someone else who runs a game that they like. I am not obligated to, you know, to cater to the whims of other adults. This is a far more transactional thing than most people think. Yeah, that's definitely a, a totally different perspective. So to go along with the story, did anybody at the panel have anything interesting to say about it? Are you kidding? No. <laughs> it, <laughs> at, most they, at most they would complain on Twitter after the fact. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I, I can see how that would have blindsided them. I think that um, I, I would actually, I would mostly agree with that. I think that uh, I discovered in, uh, in my recent game that I started up that I had to uh, execute the game that I wanted to execute because I did have a variety of people and play styles and uh, not all of them stayed. And I realized that I was okay with that. Um, I, I could find more players, and the players that stayed with me enjoyed the type of game that we were playing. And that's too bad, because uh, I wish that uh, people, especially people that you're close to, you know, you'd, you'd wish that they would join you and, you know, enjoy the fun. Uh, you know, be willing to try something new or something out of their comfort zone and, and play with you. It all depends on what kind of game you're trying to run or what kind of game people enjoy. Um, it seems to me a commonsensical assertion that different people like different styles of play and different styles of game mastering. Uh, and yet, <laughs> and yet when I say, well, what you need to start with is understanding what you enjoy in a game and understanding or discovering what, uh, you know, players who will also, and I'm assuming you're a game master at this point, uh, you know, finding players who also enjoy the kind of games that you can run or kind of games that you can run well. Um, and, but I've seen recently someone online saying, no, that's crap. There's only one way to play role-playing games. Anybody else who says differently is wrong. I'm like, dude, um, not just wrong, but anyone else who says differently is weak-minded or weak-willed or whatever. I can't remember what the exact phrase was. Um, but, you know, people like different sports. People like different movies. People like different styles of books. People like different writers within the genre they like. People like different table games, different card games. People have different hobbies. And so it seems to me to be eminently commonsensical, to be self-evident that people are going to like different role-playing games. They're going to like playing role-playing games in different ways. I don't see how recognizing that fact makes you weak-willed or whatever uh, the phrase was. Um, I, I think that's, that's just utter nonsense. So you have to understand what it is that you're trying to do and find players who are going to enjoy that. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, is doing the, you know, doing the thing that in uh, when you're talking about you know, people asking for relationship advice, you hear the phrase, you have to establish your boundaries and set your expectations, and you need to be upfront with this. That applies to the, the that applies to you know playing a game of any kind. You know, if you're the game master and you're setting up a campaign, it be you know it is a a point of ethical necessity to state upfront. This is the you know this is what this game is going to be about. The, this is the gameplay experience that you will be routinely having here. If this is what you want, contact me. If not, good luck. You know, good luck, and I hope you find something that does satisfy what you want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that that 
sort of from the GM's perspective, that's really important to, to getting the, the correct sort of rapport with your players and, and, you know, get them all on the same page as you is, is the attitude you have to the game and the people. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about in your other Chrome uh, post, uh, which, which kind of gives me a sad, the GM isn't out to get you. Oh, one of the longest running frustrations I've had, especially when when dealing with uh, with people online via the forums. RPGNet was notorious for this for quite some time, and the gaming den still is. Is this attitude that's that that you cannot trust the game master because he is out to get you. And there are far too many people who do run games that act like this. And again, it's you're not, you know, you're not thinking like adults. You're not treating each other like adults should. Instead, you're still trapped in a in a childlike, you know, childish mindset. And you're still reenacting, you know, some, you know, some, you know, BS or another from, you know, from elementary school or junior high or whatever. It's like no, stop that. You, you, know, you know, I, I can't be bothered to care. It ta- you know, to care to do that. It takes too much energy, and it's not fun. It stops being fun, and that's why I do this. You know, if I wanted to be out to get the players in my game, I could do it easily. You know, I could do it easily simply by ignoring any, you know, any sense of propriety on my part as the game master. And as a player, if I'm constantly worried that the GM is out to get me, I am not going to play my character in a manner that is consistent and believable given the environment and the conditions that exist organically and emergently in the game. Yeah, y- even even if you were to stay within those parameters, you know, stay in the context of the game, you you're still more or less omnipotent, and that gets old fast. And people have to understand that that the the GM understands that. Mm-hmm. The GM understands that he's he's not doing that. Yeah. Um, Again, it depends on what kind of game you're going, you're trying to play, and um, one style of dungeon crawling. The game master, while he's at the table, while he's running the game, is supposed to be completely impartial and not cheat in favor of the players or the monsters. But um, in designing the dungeon and laying out the rooms and things like that, they put in the most diabolical traps and things like that that will actually kill your character really, really quick, unless you are being very, very cautious, unless you're being almost paranoid. Um, There's a difference between screwing your players over, and I'm not saying that style is any better, and I'm not even saying that's my style, but there is that kind of play. Um, And so you can say that, yeah, the Game Master used every bit of ingenuity he could come up with to... uh, design the most diabolical death traps he can, but there is a fair chance that you can escape them if you think um, carefully, if you use your puzzle-solving abilities, if you are very, very cautious. Um, But at the same time, I don't know if that's what people mean by the Game Master is out to get you or not. I just know that that's a perfectly valid play style. Now... In my experience, when most people complain about the game master being out to get you, it is flat out cheating, you know, on the game master's part. And you know, there's no matter what you do, no matter what plans you come up with, no matter how ingenious you are or how lucky the dice are, you still get screwed. You still lose. And you know, the worst part, you know, the worst part of it is when such a you know, such a GM does this and then justifies it as being as being important for the story and that just makes my skin crawl it's very immature and it it really undermines the point of the exercise it's unethical flat out unethical well let's let's turn this around and be positive about it what would your advice be to dungeon masters who are struggling with a with a group uh, to sort of challenge them, and we're we're mostly talking in like the dungeon crawl sort of game. But 
even in a even in a more social game or a, like a storytelling game, like you can you can you need to be able to challenge those players without you know quote unquote cheesing them. So like, what's your advice to to dungeon master who's trying to make that happen? Well, the first thing is the first thing that a game master has to accept is sometimes you know sometimes the you know luck does not go in the way of the go you know towards the you know sometimes the villains lose period they just the luck goes against them they they're not as prepared as they thought they were and the players get a curb stomp and you know that's fine you know you know and the reason it's fine is because a good game master has a strong sense of detachment from the outcome of the game they are not personally invested in any other way other than everybody was entertained that's it if the villains lose and you know lose a you know so what if your big bad evil guy goes down in the first round and that's happened to me it happens roll with it you know that's you know you cannot rely by default in by default in a role-playing game you are playing a game you are not in a you're not doing a writing room simulator narrative tropes by default do not apply so if the you know if the heroes win right out the gate so what that's the you know that's not a big deal just you know you need to learn how to adapt to emergent situations and move on yep we've all had situations like that an encounter that you know on paper is going to completely destroy the party. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is shut down by one intelligent uh, maneuver or spell or something. Uh, it's it's great actually. It's it's great when that sort of thing happens. Um, I'm I am actually. You might call me a player killer DM. Um, I ham it up for the for the guys at the table. I always act totally disappointed when a monster misses or fails to kill somebody. Um, and my recent game is Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. I know <laughs> it, you, it is impossible to kill a character uh, in that game through sort of normal means like monsters and things. There's you can't chip at their HP because there's too many heals and, and everything like that. So I get to play that up all the time. It's great fun. But when they come up with something brilliant, it's great. Um, John Mollison in the chat says that the best DMs love it when players find easy solutions to hard problems. It's absolutely true. Yep, and he also says that DMs were originally called referees for a reason, and that also is true, to the point where the surviving old timers that i see at uh, places like the like uh, the rpg site where michael monard still posts um he still calls them referees and you know that detachment is absolutely necessary for a, for you know, to create and maintain a long-running satisfying campaign you know that's something i had to learn the hard way over several years and several campaigns and not not necessarily D and D games. Uh, for quite a while, you know, through the you know between ninety eight and two thousand seven, I was running White Wolf games almost exclusively. You know, I had three three year campaigns during that period, and that's when I learned the hard way just about everything I've spoken of. Yeah, those games are really interesting because they also were a big part of my uh, gaming past. But they're not—they're totally different kind of game. And if you if you play them like the other RPGs that they're influenced from, as many people as I have observed, they just devolve into superhero games. Yeah, that's that's one of the times where I was—I I, appreciate the fact that. The people I were playing with were were adults, generally tended to be my age or older, and were more than happy to throw me ideas to you know here and there to keep things going. Uh, fortunately, we never had to worry about total party kills at, during that period. But um, previous to that, I've had uh, you know I didn't I didn't run a game with a total party kill, but I've been a player where that happened, and. Again, that breaks down to the circumstances of the campaign. 
for your classic Dungeons and Dragons campaign, uh, the way the way they were run back in the day, um, you go in with you, know, you always have some kind of replacement character handy, or you you know grab a three by five card and your three d six in order, and you're ready to go in about five minutes. Um, other games, it depends. It really does depend. It might be the campaign killer. Sometimes it is. Uh, if any of my White Wolf campaigns had gone tits up like that, they w it would have been over. Period. Yeah. Um, some of the Rift games I've run or played in, the replacement characters are, are rolled up, sometimes with knowledge, sometimes without. You know, there's just too much variation that has to be settled at the table for there to be one simple answer. Betty Warpig, do you have any advice for the DMs? Well, my basic advice is, well, let me talk about the White Wolf games for just a second. The reason why the White Wolf game has become superhero games is because players aren't into most players, not all players, obviously, but most players aren't into the endless um, maudlin angst that was um, using Vampire the Masquerade um, as the original uh, as the original example. They're not into the endless angst where you're supposed to be the superpowered immortal badass who can tear through walls and throw cars and do whatever. But you're also at the same time supposed to be, um, you know, in a lot of psychological pain because you're cursed with being forced to drink human blood and, and kill your fellow man in order to survive. And it, it just hurts so badly. Most players, once they got a hold of the game, once they got a hold of the rules, just weren't interested in whining that much. They want to go out and have fun and do adventures. That's why White Wolf became a gothic superhero game, an urban fantasy superhero game, because they were just using those rules to have fun. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Yeah, that's the, the surefire way to lose all your players is every time one of the players has fun, the prince of the city comes over and executes them for breaching the masquerade. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason why I took to Exalted like a duck to water. <laughs> uh, yeah. well, that could, could be really interesting and generate drama, the whole masquerade thing in the power struggle. The fact that you can throw cars, but you, you're not allowed to, right? You can't be seen doing it. That sort of thing. Like you said, that's sort of an adult thing. And even adults want to throw cars and have fun too. Come on, guys. Yeah, there's a reason why the Underworld movies were successful. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, two reasons. Yeah, let, we can stop there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm glad you mentioned the, the players' attitudes because I wanted to, to shift gears to the other side of the table. Um, uh, your blog post reminded me of this great article that, um, that I found a long time ago, uh, written on, it's called 11 Ways to Be a Better Role Player. That sounds, it sounds like it could be terrible, like role-playing. I don't know about you guys, I'm not the type of player that likes to sit around talking all day. Uh, no, not me. You're, I... you're a couple, couple people in chat like that sort of thing. I, okay. I want you to re-explain what you what you just said, because I'm not sure I understood it. Um, the from that perspective of like the White Wolf games, people think of a role-playing game as acting out in character in a lot of ways, especially those of us who grew up on uh, AD&D Second Edition and later, where it uh, if you play that if you play just the the grindy stuff by the rules. It feels like a board game, and if you go the other way and go to one of those storytelling games, it's just sort of play acting with sort of a bad rules and dice game. No. Well, that's why LARPing was so successful among that crowd who played White Wolf is because it allowed them to get rid of all the fiddly role-playing rules, which wasn't what they were there for anyway. 
Yep, can confirm. Ran a vampire LARP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, actually, I, I, I played in one once, much to my uh, eternal shame, but uh, I had a lot of fun, but I realized that most people there didn't, like, we didn't know what to do. There was no impetus to do anything. I'm going to have to go talk to more vampire players and find out what the whole point is. Uh, you have to have someone who is the point of playing in a LARP, especially a vampire LARP, is that you're always conspiring against all the other players um, to gain political power or you know whatever. Um, and so, really, uh, the person who's running it, the game master, needs to set up the initial conflict and then let players backstab each other as much as they want because that's what they're there for anyway. I get yep. it. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, it's that's something... what happened with the vampire larp I, I ran. Is you know we set it up. You know the other uh, storytellers and I, the other GMs, th we set it up as specifically to be a political, you know, a political intrigue larp with lots of double dealing, backstabbing, you know, gossiping and and stuff that's not out of line with a telenovela, and you know. It really did, you know, it was one part, you know, it was one part, you know, 24 and one part soap opera and with fangs. And it worked. Yeah, especially since there was uh, there was uh, one night of play and then on, you know, one night of play a month at some location we rented. And then uh, on Wednesdays on the week, Wednesdays and Thursdays on the week, we would all gather at a, at a coffee shop and... Uh, Players would then do would then do their you know their plot and their metagame plotting there. It was kind of weird. It was like vampire and diplomacy mixed and and somehow produced something entertaining. Um, I don't know how to talk about this because if I'm go if I use the analogy that explains it most to my mind. I'm sure the people who prefer this style of play are going to be terribly insulted, but I don't mean it insultingly. The original, at least in, insofar as I understand it, the original form of role-playing was not so much taking on... Uh, and also, I need to say that the lie that gets told later in role-playing kind of obscures this issue. Role-playing was not originally play acting. It wasn't taking a list of characteristics the way an actor does and taking on that role of, uh, you know, someone with a different personality or goals or whatever. It was exploring a dungeon, using your wits to try and work, a, work around the game master's plots and puzzles. And if your character got killed, you don't have a lot of mechanics invested in the character. You don't have a lot of time, typically, at first level. And it's very, very quick to roll up another replacement character. And so I liken that in an analogous fashion to um, roguelike video games, where, you know, you don't have personality you're interacting with necessarily you're going in to get what you need and if your character dies you just make another one um and it's the discovering it's the exploration it's the puzzles it's outwitting all of these deadly traps that's the point that's where the fun of it lies yeah and the thing I, about again i do not mean that to be an insult that is not meant to be demeaning in any way mm-hmm it... The other thing to remember about the original form is that uh, your character's you know, attributes were meant to be a sec, you know, another filter that gave that further took the information that you would otherwise, you know, act on more or less in a pure manner, and filter it somehow. So even if you're a genius, if your character's a moron, you know, there's only so much, you know, so much intelligence you can apply. If your character is a fool, is a fool, or you know, or as charismatic as a brick, there's only so much you can do socially, and there's only so much care you can take against doing things that are foolhardy. It's meant to be a handicap as well as a benefit. Um, 
the thing that is interesting about, from my observations of the vast majority of role players, again, there are exceptions, and those are the kind of people, the exceptions are the kind of people who were drawn to the vampire LARPs and things like that, where they could get past the rules anyway, because they really were interested in play acting. But the vast majority of people who are playing role-playing games will pay lip service to taking on a role of another character, of a character with different personality, different mental attributes or whatever. But when you get down to it, when you actually see what they do at the table, they're really doing what the original role players um, did with just slight differences, which is they're playing themselves as if their mind were in this other body uh, in this fantasy world. It's really them playing through it. They're mostly just pretending it isn't. Oh yeah, that's totally me. Um, and I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that's wrong. But I think that the there is a massive um, public relations push towards lay, uh, later role-playing games that was just did not match what people were actually doing at the table. And whereas I think being more invested in your character than old school players were is can be a good thing depending on who you are and what kind of game you want to play and taking on a little bit more of the idea of playing in character rather than just as yourself i think that also can be a positive thing um the notion that that's entirely what you're doing is false amen I find that attitude to be very common, not just in, in uh, tabletop games, but, you know, in any medium where role-playing games exist. And it, taken to its extreme when the only thing you care about is how your, is how, is how your little, your avatar interacts with, interacts with, with the game solely in terms of, of rules and mechanics, that leads to what I call mech piloting. And, you know, that's where you get people, you know, that's where you get people like the folks at the gaming den, where that's all that they talk about is this game is bad or good or or needs work be solely because of, of mechanical mechanics and rules and how they interact. And they completely ignore the other part of the game, which is dealing with the environment, which is not and in many cases cannot be properly quantified by rules mechanics so you have to use you know real world natural language and deal with it in as commonsensical a manner as you can and the reason you need to do it that way is because if you tried to do it you know solely by mechanics you end up doing a sisyphean task of doing of what amounts to making code and you don't buy a tabletop role-playing game to try to approach it as if it were a computer program well, I, I guess you don't, but judging by the subscription numbers of World of Warcraft, I'd argue that it's the most common case. Well, that's because I think, you know, I think that gamers in general are now so sufficiently large as a group, as a body of people that we now have separate and distinct areas where different you know, different gamers who want different things are more than able to satisfy their desires. And, you know, that leads to another series of blog posts I did recently where I was talking about where, what the tabletop media, RPG medium is, how it differs versus its competitors, and where its strengths lie versus those competitors. Tabletop role-playing games work best when they are, when they, when they establish and maintain a presence in a conceptual space that is liminal it sits on the boundaries between different you know different places that uh in tabletop games are often referred to as mini games like the uh the combat mini game the economic mini game the stronghold mini game which is pseudo economic in many cases and pseudo political at the same time uh those three are where uh, old school D D has its quote-unquote endgame status when you get to name level at 9th, 10th, 12th, whatever, and you establish your stronghold. Um, other later games took away a lot of that, and some games back, you know, that, 
that uh, come out that came out in that era, like Traveler, classic Traveler. Um, a lot of travel classic Traveler games, you know, really are just about moving from one minigame to another using that you know using that liminal space quality to allow you to easily transition from one to the next. You know, if you're playing a free trader, you're going to be dealing a lot with uh, with you know the the rules you know the minigame about trading commodities from planet to planet if you're a scout if you're playing a scout game you're going to be dealing a lot with world generation and scouting things like that you know Here, here's the thing about being overly constant overly um concerned with the rules even if you're playing as yourself or mostly as yourself you know, the goals and motivations come from you, the player, not the character. Um, you, um, there is a sense of being involved with the in-game world that comes when you're focusing on, for example, not, well, my search skill is a 20 and I roll a 10 and I'm going to spend a hero point and that will add another five and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, use this particular tool and that will add another five and therefore I should find anything. That is one way to interact with the game. I think that's a, no matter what style you're working in, I think that's a terrible way to interact with RPGs because it completely castrates what RPGs are supposed to be good at, which is presenting vividly this fictional world that doesn't exist, but you accept it exists in a certain sense for the point of the game. So what would be better than focusing on the numbers and rolling a search check is the game master saying, uh, you're in a room that's about 15 feet high. It's got a vaulted ceiling, so it's lower in the corners. The floor is made up of a series of flagstones with mortar in between them. In the middle of the room is a small metal indentation in the floor, and there is a bunch of black suit around this metal. Uh, it's a big square that dips down in the center, and there's a grate there. There's a bunch of suit around the sides. You can see on the other side what looks to be some kind of statue in an alcove, and continue like that describing the room. And then the players say, before we walk into the room, we look at the tiles to see if any of them are worn down. Or maybe they do the Sherlock thing and, and throw something on the floor. And the game master says, well, yeah, typically the rolling the marble, uh, or excuse me, elementary, rolling the marble uh, would normally maybe tell you where this floor has been sloping so you can see where it's been worn. But the fact is these flagstones, they're really, really rough. So that doesn't give you any information. The more you make it, even if it's just the player playing themselves, the more you make it about the player interacting with the world and not interacting with the mechanics, the more vivid the world will be, the more rewarding play will be. And it doesn't matter if the play involves frequent character death. That, that's irrelevant. That won't either uh, enhance or detract from the game. It just depends on what your particular play style is, but the more vivid you can make the world and the more players are concentrating on what actions they take in the context of the world, the more they accept the reality of it, the better your game will be. And that can extend to social interactions as well. You can describe how the NPC they're interacting with, his eyes shift back and forth quickly and he's got um, a pattering of sweat on his brow and he, he kind of furrows his brow and won't meet your eyes. Well, okay, the player can think to themselves, he's probably lying. That seems like someone who, or, or at least there's something else going on there. And you can direct, you know, you can say, okay, well, I look at his clothes. Is there anything out of place? I look around this shop. You know, does it seem like he really is a, um, a shopkeeper? And the game master can say, well, you can see that in the back beyond the door, it seems like the chairs are toppled over. And all of a sudden the player thinks, oh, okay, Something happened back there, and this guy is nervous about it. Maybe he's not actually the shopkeeper, because it looks like these clothes are too small. You take the clues from the description of the world, and you use those to immerse the players in the world, and then they make the decisions on what to do next. The more you concentrate on that, and the less you concentrate on numbers, the more rewarding the game will generally be. 
for the vast majority of the players. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I call that the fundamental game, you know, gameplay feedback loop, where the game master describes the situation, and the players make a decision. They act on it. You know, the GM describes what the results and the consequences are, and updates the situation. Lather, rinse, repeat, and you know that, you know, that feedback feedback loop works as well as it does because it is very efficient in you know in spreading information and passing it between the two you know between the game master and the players back and forth in a rapid manner in a way that a video game simply cannot handle a way that a board game is not designed to handle or a card game it is because of this feature that a tabletop role playing game can do what it does and have the magical effect that it's had for those who've really embraced, you know, the power in this medium for its entertainment value. You know, I call this, you know, I call tabletop RPGs a medium of virtual life experience for this reason, because once you once you get into that zone, you can have some very, you know, very interesting, very powerful experiences, uh, and it's not just in the, in the in a fantasy environment, the most powerful role-playing experience I ever had was playing uh, a game Palladium bo you know, Books published uh, called Recon. It was by default you are a U.S. soldier in the Vietnam War, and I was not running this game. I played in it, and we had a house rule: any character who survived ten missions got to go home. What the GM didn't tell us until we got playing is that we started on the first day of the Tet Offensive. None of us made it through 10 missions. <laughs> None of us did. Um, my, I played a medic and I got as close as closer, closer than anyone else at seven. And then I took a, I took a mortar round to the head. So you blocked it then? Yeah. Well, I, I want to I want to address what Daddy Warpig said a minute ago before it's, it's left my mind. I think I've often run into players and occasionally been a player that in that in that feedback loop that you're talking about, using the game mechanics as a tool to interact with that uh, with that setting. Even if you're in middle of the game and and the the game master has described what's going on and it, and it's your turn more or less, um, I've heard things like I want to use my perception skill over here or I want to influence this guy to do that and and they immediately reach for the dice because they know the related mechanic and they assume that they're going to make make a roll on that and that that feels to me like it's sort of bridging the gap between pure mech piloting and that feedback loop that Daddy Warpig's talking about. How do you deal with that? My, my advice to GMs who want to focus on immersion in the world and not mechanics is to make a solid staunch rule that the players can't roll until they've described what their characters are doing. Yep, make them declare first. And not just declare, but not just say, well, I want to search the desk. Make them describe what they're doing. You know, I want to pull out the top drawer. Um, I want to see if there's any false backs in the drawers of the desk. I want to, uh, you know, look around to see if any of the, de if, any, if there's a lock, an obvious lock in any of the desk drawers, because what we're looking for is probably going to be kept safe. Uh, or even, you know what, I, I don't think it's going to be in the desk. I want to look around are there paintings on the walls here? What do they look like? I want to look behind the paintings to see if there's a, a safe there. Mm -hmm. And and my, the guideline for the... Uh, I've mentioned this on the air before, so I can mention it again. I'm putting together my own RPG, my own role-playing game. And I've been thinking about these issues a lot. You may have been able to tell because of my last rant. But the guideline that I like is, one, don't let players roll until they describe what they're doing. Two, if they get it right, don't make them roll at all. If you say, well, there's a safe behind this painting, and it happens to be a painting of George Washington, 
and they look at the paintings and because of some clue or just random chance, they look behind the picture of George Washington. Don't make them roll a search check. They got it. They, they figured out what's going on. They found it. They don't have to make a find check. The player found it. Don't make them roll. It's stupid. It wastes yeah. time. It focuses on the mechanics rather than the play. In other circumstances where either the player might find it or not, or where time is a factor and how quickly you can find it might be a factor, and that's an aspect of the character, you can make them roll, but use their description as a, a modifier to where if they're describing things and they're acting in a smart way, they get a big bonus to the role. And if they're describing things and acting in a stupid way, they get a big penalty to the role. Use what the players tell you their characters are doing as a guide to the modifiers for the role. So don't let them roll until they explicitly state what their characters are doing in the world. Don't make them roll if they got it right. And then if you do have to roll, use their description of the players, of the characters' actions to determine whether they get a positive or negative modifier and how big that modifier ought to be. Those, I'm not saying that's a perfect concept to work from, and it doesn't apply in every circumstance, but as far as like search checks, as far as investigation, as far as um, you know, social interactions with NPCs, that seems to be a fairly robust model that focuses the attention on what it should be on in a role-playing game. Yeah, yeah, that comes down to uh, knowing knowing what you want to do with with the mechanics because the mechanics are the way that that uh, gameplay is necessarily abstracted for the purpose of keeping things manageable at the table. You know, if you, you know, if you know what you want to abstract away when you need to do it, you know, your players by and large are going to go along with how you handle things. And uh, the way I'm seeing it right now in my mind is that the 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 mechanics and in some games, this is the case. But in my opinion, in a proper role-playing game, the mechanics and the dice rolls aren't there to generate results. They're not there to generate a particular outcome or anything like that. They're there to account for the abstraction and for random chance. Um, you can't generate a grievous wound on the dragon. But uh, you can generate a successful office search like daddy warpig described that's something that the player does not the dice the way i've been thinking about role-playing games recently and this is very very differently than the way i've thought about it before um every situation in a game is sort of a puzzle in that the players have a goal they want to achieve they have obstacles in their way and they have to figure out how to get around the obstacles, go over the obstacles, go through the obstacles, um, whatever they have to do. And so you, you may describe that in a different way. You may have put a different label on it. So please don't let my label, you know, confuse the discussion. There's a goal the players want to achieve. There's obstacles to achieving that goal. Because if there weren't obstacles, it wouldn't be interesting. And the players have to figure out how to circumvent the obstacles in order to achieve their goal. To me, the analogy I use is that's like a puzzle. Um, and, and actually what I think about when I think of puzzles is one of the Resident Evil games. You know, you need to get through this door, but in order to get through this door, you need to solve this puzzle. It's that's that fundamental model applies to very basically every situation in a role-playing game. Let's say you want to buy a weapon, but you don't have enough money. Okay, so the goal is, I need to buy a weapon for the money I have. So the obstacle is, it actually costs a lot more, and you have to decide, well, maybe I can negotiate with the person who I'm buying from. Maybe I can use my fame to get a discount. Maybe we can sneak into the shop later at, you know, late at night and steal it. Maybe we can take the guy captive right now and take it. Maybe we can kill him and take it. 
you have to figure out a way around that obstacle. And to me, the way I describe that is it's a puzzle. It's something that the players need to use their ingenuity and the resources their characters have to figure out what actions they can take in order to achieve their goals. And the neat thing about role-playing is the goals are not necessarily externally set. They're set by what the players decide to value, what the players decide they want to achieve. That's a good point, and and I'm actually I've run into that pro a problem with that a couple of times in my uh, after work game because it's just a, a sort of throw together mega dungeon game. So finding player and character motivations can be difficult at times. You know, besides mountains of treasure, which I'd like to point out for the first full year of the campaign, they had no idea if there was any treasure in the dungeon. That is a stingy mega dungeon, guys. But you know <laughs> what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Um, we normally run about an hour. This has been a great discussion. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about more about the player side, which we've been doing. Um, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on these, uh, these 11 ways to be a better role player. Uh, I'm not going to list them all, but I'm going to list a couple of the really important ones. One really, really important advice, do stuff. We've all been there, right? We've all sort of like, I don't see how I should interact in this situation. And the game is boring, right? Uh, there, you know, that's one of those things where you just have to sit them down and say, look, this game is about doing whatever. If, you know, if you stop being, you know, stop, you know, sandbagging and get with the program, you know, you're, you know, you're ruining it for everyone else. I'm glad you mentioned sandbagging because that was one of the other points, which I think is the most important point on the list. More importantly than doing stuff is to don't try to stop something. This is especially hard with like, uh, with uh, younger players where somebody wants to do something and another one says, no, 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 don't do that. It's the worst possible thing you can do at your gaming table besides staring at your cell phone. Oh yeah, people not giving giving the game your full attention, that just drives me up a wall. You know that 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 was one of my one of my recent posts the other day. Oh yeah, it's uh, I actually had a player, one of my favorite players, uh, in the after work game, was always on the phone when it wasn't her turn, and and she. She valued the NPC interaction aspect of the game much more than the, you know, the physics and the mechanics of the dungeon crawl. Uh, so it was it was really hard to sort of like I you enjoy the game when you're engaged, but you're not always engaged, and it feels like when I'm when I'm behind the screen and I'm looking out and you're just staring at your phone, like that feels really bad. Mm. Yeah, there's something to be, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, just, if the game is not that, in, you know, is not that in entertaining for you, you know, there is no obligation to stick around, you know, just, you know, say, sorry, this ain't working and leave. I agree. I agree. There's, there's, here's another one. Here's another one that I actually don't agree with. Know the system. Don't be a dick about it. And I'll, t I'll, I'll, most people, most people, I think would agree with it, but I don't. I don't think it's important to know the game system. The most fun I have ever had in a role-playing game. The referee handled the game. I rolled the dice. What I, I, when he asked, I was perfectly competent at reading my character sheet and adding the numbers together when appropriate. Other than that. I didn't care about what the combat mechanics were. I didn't care about, you know, what was the best, you know, items and weapons and things like that. We just played the game and we had so much fun. I think if you do know the system, don't be a dick about it. Nobody likes a rules lawyer, but it's better to not even know the system. You know, I have to concur. As a player, it is absolutely unnecessary to actually know the rules of the game. That's why you have a game master, you know. That's his job. You don't need to know anything. You know, the very best rule, tabletop role-playing games, as, you know, and I'm talking in terms of, of 
you know, game design are ones where you can show up and with show up in, in what I call cold and stupid. No preparation, no outside knowledge. Just sit down and play and go. And you are no less effective than the guy who's mastered the rules. And as a corollary, big warning to anybody running basically any um, role-playing game made after D&D 3. Uh, they lay out common combat maneuvers and it stops being a game of what do you want to do and it becomes a game of this is your menu of options this is how they work so what do you want to do out of this menu of options it just limits their imaginations um an another yeah. thing go ahead yeah that's another problem with uh with the way role-playing games have been played in the last going oh god keep forgetting i keep forgetting how long i've been at this uh since 2000 so since dnd3 so 17 years now um michael monard one of the old timers one of the originals he said it best in the old days the you know the prevailing attitude was everything not forbidden is permitted and now it's the opposite everything not permitted is forbidden yep and, and just to nitpick, I love, I actually really like D&D 3. Uh, it, it's a great, crunchy, uh, it, it probably makes an excellent board game. Uh, but especially in D&D 3, where you've got all these great, cool things that you can do, but they're totally worthless if you don't have a 16 or better in the stat with the feat that goes along with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. The, you know, the, the days of build culture arose with that edition of D&D. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a shame. Uh, so that's my warning to anybody. Uh, although, is anybody listening who isn't a veteran of, of uh, gaming? We'll find out. Uh, I hope I get some cool questions or emails uh, from listeners. Uh, another, uh, this is my next favorite. Uh, best advice after don't try and stop anything, embrace failure. And this is the hardest one. This is the hardest one for anybody deal to deal with, especially th those of us raised on video games and, you know, later editions of D&D. It's fa failure isn't bad. It's just different. And it's hard to deal with that because in real life, we are very averse to failure. I'd have to understand what they meant by that better before I had an opinion on it. Let, let me read the now, entry. this is advice for players. I understand that. Yeah, advice for players. I'll just read the entry. This is from the uh, from the blog post. Uh, it was published like four years ago, and it's linked in the notes of the show. So it says, failure can be embarrassing. I know that I get pretty head up when the dice don't fa favor me. When I've spent ages waiting to have my turn in a large game, say, or when I'm using some special power, or when I've been talking a big talk for a while, or described some fancy action, and I use some pretty bad language too. And not fun bad language. I'll, I'll skip this part. And that's not cool. I need to learn to treat failure as a story branch, not a block. Why did I miss? Why, did my, why didn't my intimidation role work? Why didn't I pick the lock? Why was I seen? Who worked out that I'm the traitor? What other options can I explore? I, Go ahead. I would say rather... Um, that people get, oh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without swearing. Don't be a wuss, um, is really what they're saying there. Don't be a wuss. Don't, and however they want to explain that, whatever advice they want to give for how you, you're, you know, how you don't be a wuss at the table, that, that's okay. But basically it comes down to if you fail, take it like a man and go on to something else because um, it doesn't necessarily matter that much. If you miss something, if you miss in combat or whatever, you know, just, just roll with it. Don't be a wuss. Um, and so you can add a bunch of complicated explanation about how you can think about failure, whatever. That's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it really boils down to 
don't be a wuss. Don't cry if you happen not to um, not to succeed at every single role. Amen. And and I've been among the worst. I can be a pretty sore loser. This is why I, I run the games now. Yep. I I'll fess up. I've I've had my sore loser moments over the years. I've I try now. Now I you know now. I try not to do that. It's not fun. It's not good for everyone else either. And in everyone else's defense, I think what we were talking about at the beginning of the show applies. These games encourage this sort of precious character narrative overrides, you know, the actual fun of the game sort of playstyle where like if you fail, you know, your character could die, like the whole story could fall apart. You know, like the narrative stops making sense if this role goes bad. Well, that means two things. First of all, the the story's a little too important. Um, uh, and the second thing I totally blanked on. <laughs> yeah, it's because of that that I st I started, you know, going back into the history of, of the medium and having found that, you know, that, those kind of narrative tropes were not present and really don't need to be there. That's when I started turning against story games, uh, you know, and you know, as RPGs, because they they don't work. They keep ruining the fun, you know. And even the the best of them are nothing more than a writing room simulator. Absolutely. And the the, the second point that comes out of that is, if if you're test or skill roll or whatever has to succeed for the narrative work, then it's not a very important or interesting skill roll, is it? Uh, well, we're... I'd like to wrap it up here. Uh, do you guys have any other thoughts on players' roles or, or as you said before the show, the ethics of uh, role-playing? Uh, Bradford? The big thing, to, the, the big thing to take away, is to not get so invested in the outcome that you forget why you are sitting at the table, virtual or literal, in the first place. You are an adult. You should be playing with. You no, know, you should be acting and playing as you know, acting and playing as an adult. Treat the other players and the game master as you would anyone else. You. They deserve the same basic courtesy and expectation, you know, courtesy and expectations of same as you would at the on the job, in your bowling league, when you're, you know, if on the trap line shooting clays, whatever, you know, there is really no reason for a lot of the immaturity that has gone on and continues, unfortunately, to go on in tabletop gaming, you know, both, you know, both individual tables and within the larger scene. And unfortunately, you know, until, you know, it's going to continue to be a problem until we decide that we've had enough and we're just going to put our foot down collectively. Well, I think there's hope for the future as long as folks like us are sitting around and playing the games that we like to play. Exactly. All right, guys. Well, Bradford Walker, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much. I was glad to be here. Yeah, and and uh, I look forward to seeing more of your blog posts. Uh, just a reminder for everybody else, we've got the link to your blog, uh, bradforcwalker.blogspot.com. It's in the show notes, as well as the uh, article that I mentioned earlier about uh, advice to players. I forward it to every uh, game player I know. I highly recommend the article. And I'm going to recommend your recent Chrome uh, posts and stuff, too. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, folks, you can uh, find me at the main blog. Uh, it's, uh, you know... It's known as Walker's Retreat. Um, I talk mostly about you know tabletop gaming, sometimes video gaming, and other things of popular culture and such that are of interest to me. And I have links to my other blogs in, in the page you know in the page row at the top. Um, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, and special thanks to my co-host and brilliant uh, game master, referee, whatever, Daddy Warpig. Daddy Warpig, anything last to say? Um, I, I do have one thing to say real quick about the gaming den. Yes, mechanics do affect play, but um, it isn't necessarily super straightforward, and different players with different goals will depend on different mechanics. 
mechanics will never be mathematically perfect and they don't have to be mathematically perfect to make a good game or to have fun at the table or have a decent system. Amen. Thanks. All right, guys, that wraps it up. This has been Geek Gab Game Night for Thursday, June 29, 2017. For those of you listening, if you like what you heard, you want to listen to more of our stuff at youtube.com slash geekgab, or you can search for Geek Gab at SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you can get free podcasts, we should be there. To get a notification of our YouTube shows, you need to do the double secret subscribe, hit the subscribe button under the video, and then click the bell, and you'll get alerts in your email. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Special thanks to everybody in the chat. We had a lively discussion tonight. Appreciate everybody listening and chatting and sending us questions. This is Dornell, your host, signing off uh, from me to from everybody on the Geek Gab. Good night and game on.